am I? Good morning. I'm Judith Lay, welcoming you to Praise, the program that connects faith and daily life. Man's Radio. On today's program, a new book shines a light on a remarkable Manxman. Ahead of the day itself, I go in search of St. Valentine, and we end with a few words from another remarkable gentleman. But let's start with music from Marilyn Baker. God gave his all, his only son, that God and man might be at one. The barriers have been setting of familiar words, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, sung for us there by Marilyn Baker. Wayne Clark is a Baptist minister whose church serves a multiracial community in Gorton in Manchester. But it's the time that he spent leading a Baptist church in Liverpool which inspired him to write a book that has a strong Manx connection. The book is called A Ready Man and tells the story of a truly remarkable preacher, social activist and friend of the poor. And the Manx Connection? 
Well, the subject of the book is Hugh Stowell Brown, elder brother of our national poet, Thomas Edward Brown. And this morning I'm joined by Wayne Clark to find out what inspired him to research and write the book. I went to Liverpool as a Baptist minister to be minister at Dovedale Baptist Church in South Liverpool and discovered on the wall of the church a photograph of this man who I'd never heard of before, but discovered that he was someone who'd paved the way for me being in that church because he'd been the minister of the Myrtle Street Baptist Church, which in the 19th century was the biggest Baptist church in Liverpool in the city centre. And that church had a great tradition of planting other churches and Hugh Stowell Brown's church, Myrtle Street, had planted a church in the community where my church, as it had become, was working. And so I'd come, as it were, a successor to the work that Hugh Stowell Brown had been doing in Liverpool 150 years previously as a Victorian pastor and evangelist and preacher and someone who had a great passion for the poor. I'd never heard of this man before, but just hearing about him ignited in me something that, that made me want to find out more. I'm passionate about history, I'm passionate about church life and about someone who seemed to have such a a resonance with all the things that mattered to me. And I thought, I want to find out more about this man. So that's where my interest began. Hugh Stowell Brown, T.E. Brown, sons of an Anglican priest. That's right, Robert Brown, who was a minister, first of all, in Old St. Matthews in Douglas, and then Old Kirk Braddon. He was Anglican, but a very low church Anglican. He, he described himself as a very poor Anglican. <laughs> He, he was a very good parish priest. He loved the people he worked with who spoke English and Manx. Interestingly, he, he had to do his services one week in English and one week in, in the Manx language, which he struggled with all his life. He loved his people, but he, he never really liked the liturgy of the Anglican Church. He never recited the creed, unwillingly baptised babies. He never had his children baptised in a public way as babies and was the lowest of the low church of Anglicans <laughs> and kind of got away with it. And Hugh Stowell Brown himself grew up in that tradition and he grew up as an Anglican, but later in his teenage years encountered free church Christianity, encountered Baptist and realised that his heart really was more there. His love was for the Bible and for the people of God, but not so much for the traditions of the church. Hugh studied for two years at King William College for uh, Anglican ministry. It was always his mother's passion that Hugh should become a clergyman in the Anglican tradition. But then when the Bishop of Man, a man called Thomas Fowler Short, who, who was very high church, Thomas Fowler Short said that Hugh was perfectly made to be a, a country parson and a head teacher of a school. And Hugh thought this was the worst thing that he could do with his life, to become a country parson. He wanted to be a preacher and someone who served the poor and, and preached the gospel. And he just didn't want to be put into this mould of a Manx country parson, and he, he completely rebelled. They were both academic in a sense. I mean, Hugh loved to read, and he was a, a preacher and a lecturer. He had quite an academic vocation, but Hugh was all, always the more practical one. He trained as an engineer as well. He loved numbers, and he loved things, and he loved engineering. But most of all, he loved people. And T. E. Brown was more scholarly and more academic in that sense, loved his books more, loved to teach more 
which you didn't. So that that really was the difference between them, yeah. So where does the engineering fit in? Was that the next thing that he did after he left King Williams? He, he did that before he went to King Williams, actually. He left home as a teenager and said, I'm having nothing more of this academic life. I want to see the world. So he, he went to England and did some apprenticeship, first of all, as a surveyor, a land surveyor, and then as an engineer and went into the railway engineering first of all. So he did two apprenticeships. After he'd done land surveying, his apprenticeship was as a railway engineer in the the Wolverton Works in what we now call Milton Keynes. And uh, it was there that he came across the first Baptist church he'd ever been to and also met a young woman who we ended up a few years later marrying. But he did feel called to ministry at that time. And although he'd been to a Baptist church, it was that that sent him back to the island to go to King William's to do what, what his mother wanted him to do, which was train for Anglican ministry. Then his father died and he became a breadwinner for the family. And he was left in limbo for a little bit. But then he got a call from Myrtle Street Baptist Church in Liverpool to go across and preach for them on a Sunday and he fitted there in a way that he wasn't expecting the church wasn't expecting and they said stay on and and preach for us a few times although he was only in his early 20s he'd hardly ever preached he had no training in the Baptist denomination at all within a few months they'd called him to be their minister and he became pastor of Myrtle Street Baptist Church, which was an enormous barn of a building, which had about 250 members, but they would have rattled around in a big building at that time. And he ended up being their minister for the next 40 years. That was to be what he did for the rest of his life. He became an enormously successful minister at Myrtle Street, Liverpool. He was born in 1823, so we're talking about the mid-1840s when he went to Liverpool. And the most significant thing that was happening in Liverpool in the 1840s was the Irish potato famine. It was the year of highest immigration from Ireland of people who were extremely poor, who were starving, and they left Ireland. And where did they go? They went to England. And where did they land? In Liverpool. And most of them stayed there. The population of Liverpool doubled in five years, and nearly all of those were Irish folk. Many of them Catholic, of course, but also a sizable number were Protestant. And Hugh found himself right in the middle of that, surrounded by abject poverty right in the city centre of Liverpool at that time. He knew what poverty was like because when the family were in Kirkbraddon, the family had very little money and they, they really did scrimp and save, but not the kind of poverty that was happening in the tenements of Liverpool. He had a ministry amongst the poor which was extraordinary, setting up various sources of help and sources of, of support. So he, he was involved with very many charities. He was involved through his church with some very innovative sources of supporting people. Housing was a big, big factor in the need that people had. The use of money, and so they set up what they called the Workman's Bank, which was, I suppose, what we would today would call a credit union, a kind of way in which poorer people could access banking facilities. In those days, you could only set up a bank account if you had plenty of money to invest in a proper bank account. It was for the rich. But the poorer people would get some money, they would spend all their money, often the men would waste the money on alcohol or gamble the money away, and 
Hugh particularly saw that if 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 the women in the family could save some money, then they could save up for things that they needed, like better clothes for their children. And they just weren't able to do that because they had no nowhere safe to put that money. So this workman's bank was revolutionary for the poorer people in Liverpool at that time. He was a campaigner against the abuse of alcohol. He was a campaigner for those who were widowed, particularly the, the, the widows of seafarers. A lot of people went out to sea and didn't come back, and the widows had nothing. That was a, a big cause at Hugh's heart, to care for the widows and families of seafarers. Many things like this he did. He was a gifted preacher and communicator, and that was the other thing he was most famous for, was his public speaking. He saw that many people didn't go to church, not because they were irreligious or, or had no faith, it was because they didn't have the right clothes to wear. Now, you could hardly believe that in our day. Who cares what clothes you go to church in these days? But in those days, you didn't go to church unless you had your Sunday best. And many of the poorer people didn't have the right clothes to wear. And so what Hugh did very cleverly they set up these series of Sunday afternoon lectures. They called them lectures for working men. They weren't just for men. Although, interestingly, while most of the churches were full of women, these lectures did actually attract men. They set up these Sunday afternoon lectures in a public hall, not in a church. That was important. These public lectures were full to overflowing, and I mean thousands of people, two or 3,000, perhaps 4,000 people in a public hall, sometimes with overspill rooms as well, coming to hear the great man, Hugh Stowell Brown, preaching. They were called public lectures, but when you read them, because some have been printed and survived to this day, they sound like sermons. They're Bible-based and they're the application of scripture to practical issues of the day, like money, like relationships, how to treat your husband or wife or children, like how to look after your house and how to care for the, for other people. In plain speaking ways, he got through to people and these public lectures were extraordinarily successful. And in the summer, he took them outside onto the streets and thousands would gather to hear this great preacher, people who would never go inside his church. And I think this is just an act of genius of Christian communication. People used to come to his church from other places. If people know the Liverpool area, they'll know there's places like Warrington and Widnes and St Helens and other parts of Liverpool. People would come and he'd say, why are you coming here? And he'd be influential in starting a, a church where they lived. And there are churches that are still flourishing today that, that were started by Hugh Stowell Brown and, and his people. People loved him. When he, when he died, there were 7,000 people lined the streets for his funeral. That's how much he was loved. And they said, we've got to remember this man somehow. So they raised a lot of money for a, a statue made out of Carrera marble. Now, that's the best marble you can get. They employed Queen Victoria's favourite sculptor to create this uh, sculpture of Hugh Stowell Brown, which stood outside his church in Myrtle Street in the centre of Liverpool, just off Hope Street. And it stood there until the church was demolished in, in the, at the end of the second. Second World War, when the whole of Liverpool city centre was cleared for new developments, the church was demolished. The statue for a, for a while was moved to another site, and then eventually it got taken down, and it was lost. It just faded from public memory what the council had done with it, and it wasn't the councils to do anything with because it didn't really belong to them. I'd seen evidence of this statue. I'd seen pictures of it, and I knew where the plinth was that it stood on, but the statue had gone missing. So I started investigating where this statue had gone to 
and found one man in, in the council in, in Liverpool who had some memory of it. I took him a photograph of it and said, this is what it looked like. Do you know where it is? And he said, well, actually, come with me. And he took me to a place called Croxteth Hall Park. And behind the park, there's a farm, an open farm that you can visit. And behind this open farm, there's a whole load of yards where the council keep farm materials and farm equipment of various kinds. And lying in the, in the corner of a farmyard, underneath a water pipe, was this decaying marble statue. And I said, that's him! That's Hugh Stowell-Brown! It had been lying there neglected all those years, falling to pieces. And I got it in the local paper and on the, the radio station I worked for at the time. And we said, we must do something about restoring this. I decided I needed to write the book of the man's memory to restore the memory of this great man, the brother of the great poet. And, and, and we also needed to restore the statue. And a group in Liverpool who were into statues, perhaps more than I am, took up the cause. But then eventually, when some building work was being done in Liverpool, they said to the building company, in order to build this student accommodation, we want you to put some money into restoring the statue. It was a brilliant idea because they said, yes, we will. And through private funding, the statue was restored. And about three years ago, it was put back with its plinth just around the corner from where it used to stand on Hope Street in the centre of Liverpool and you can go and see it now and the book's out and I think the two should come together the book and the statue to restore the memory of Hugh Stowell Brown. It's a great title A Ready Man was that part of a quote that somebody said about him? Yes it was yeah the, the quote originally comes from Francis Bacon who lived hundreds of years before Hugh Stowell Brown. Francis Bacon said reading maketh a full man conference maketh a ready man. Many people are made full by reading, but Hugh Stowell Brown has been made a ready man by conference. What he meant was this. He meant anyone can read lots of books and learn lots of information. But what Hugh Stowell Brown has done, because he talks to people, he has become a ready man. In other words, he can be prepared to use the, the knowledge he has and the skills he has as a public speaker. He can use that information in the right way to serve people because of what, in the, what Francis Bacon called conference. In other words, talking to people, getting to know people and their needs. And, and as I've worked on the book and as I've got to know Hugh, I feel like he's my friend from another century now. And he continues to encourage me. And I think that's something history can do for us people from other countries or people from other centuries it, it can encourage us I think to be better people in my case to be a better pastor I would hope and a better communicator and to have a, a, a continually growing relationship with my Lord Jesus Christ as well because that's what I think he would want of me.
Music from Margaret Ritzer, and before that I was talking to Baptist minister, broadcaster and author Wayne Clark about his book A Ready Man, the life of Hugh Stowell Brown, brother of our national poet Thomas Edward T.E. Brown. A Ready Man costs £8.99, it's published by Instant Apostle and it's available from Church's Bookshop in Howard Street here in Douglas. Well, this coming Friday will be a busy one for postmen, florists and restaurants as romantically inclined couples celebrate Valentine's Day. There might also be some marriage proposals, especially as this is a leap year. But just how much do we actually know about the origins of the day, or indeed St Valentine himself? It seems that the first official St Valentine's Day was on the 14th of February in the year 496, by order of Pope Galatius, in memory of a 3rd century priest who'd been put to death in Rome. But it's not known for sure whether Pope Galatius was honouring this 3rd century priest, or whether it was one of two other priests martyred on the 14th of February in other years. But nothing further is known about these two other St Valentines. It's the priest in Rome that has become the most widely acclaimed of the three. But why was a third-century Roman priest put to death? In his prison cell, awaiting execution, Valentine reflects on his past. The year is 269 AD. How much time have I got left? I'm sitting in a cold, damp cell waiting for an executioner. My crime? Marrying couples. Yes, you heard me. Absurd, isn't it? See, our emperor had a strange idea that if soldiers were single, they'd be more likely to sign up with the Roman army. So marriage was banned. Stupid idea. That's what I thought. That rule was meant to be broken. So I started to wed couples in secret. I knew I'd be discovered at some point. But I brought happiness into people's lives. That's what a priest does, isn't it? Spread a bit of love and hope in the world. I just have to remember what first inspired me. That line in the Bible that says that if I have no love, I'm nothing. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. My name is Valentine, and this is my story. Bishop Valentine was ultimately beheaded, but not before he had fallen in love with the jailer's daughter. I can't believe it. They took Valentine away today. They took him. He's gone. They've taken him to the city square. He's been sentenced to death and for what? Marrying couples? What sort of crime is that? All he did was try to bring some good into this world. Why did this have to happen? Why? He just wanted to spread the word of love and give people hope. It's just amazing what he did. This man, this priest, Valentine. He went against the law just to give people some happiness in their life. And now his life has been cut short. I remember when we were sitting together. 
He looked at me through the bars of his prison cell and told me what he believed. He said, three things will last forever. Faith, hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. He left me a letter and signed it. From your Valentine. So if we're fortunate enough to get a Valentine's card or maybe even a gift, perhaps we could also spare a thought for that third century priest who believed that helping couples make a commitment to each other in marriage was so important that he was prepared to defy the law of the day even though he knew it would end, as it did, in his own death. Whatever you do on Friday, I wish you a share of that unselfish love that's at the heart of Valentine's Day. And now, from the Praise Archive. On the 1st of August 1999, in Trinity Methodist Church at Rosemount here in Douglas, a truly remarkable Methodist minister preached a sermon during a service led by Reverend Kenneth Elworthy, the minister at Trinity at that time. The preacher was the Reverend Leonard Duchars, and the occasion was his 100th birthday. It was a wonderful service. Members of Reverend Duchars' family gave the Bible readings, and his daughter-in-law, Mrs Pam Duchars, was the organist. Reverend Duchars said that his whole ministry could be summed up in the words of that beautiful hymn, All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my days and all my hours. Let my hands perform his bidding, let my feet run in his ways. Let mine eyes see only Jesus, let my lips speak forth his praise. Christ is always with you. He holds your hand and his presence will give you strength to meet all the dark and painful and tragic things that may come to you in this life. And so I do beg you, believe in Jesus Christ, trust him and live with him. Just a few powerful words from the sermon preached to a packed church by Reverend Leonard Duchars on his 100th birthday. He died peacefully on the 18th of September 2001 in his 103rd year and the 78th year of his ministry. And that's all we've time for this week. Thank you for listening to this week's Praise Podcast. There's a new Praise Podcast available every Sunday morning. You can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify via the Manx Radio smartphone app or at manxradio.com. So, till we meet again, this is Judith saying thank you for your company and I wish you and those you love every blessing in the days ahead. 
Station Station Manx Ray